Oh, hi. It's uh, Stefan Molyneux from uh, Freedom Main Radio. I've been reading yeah. your How you doing? Uh, audiobooks, and you said that you might grace me with uh, a, a short interview. I just finished your chapter on uh, uh, Christianity and the Holy Wars, and uh, I was just wondering if we you, could – uh, And you just threw up. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's, uh, it's very, very, it's uh, very you intense know, stuff. I was brought up a Christian. I was, I was a Protestant, uh, went to church. I liked singing. And I heard that Christ was nice to people and that uh, everybody said, uh, send the children to them, to him. You know? Right, so right. When, I, when I did the original research, I looked. I said, what are these idiot uh, uh, historians doing telling all these lies? I mean, my God, that's awful stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so is is now a good time to to chat? Sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, first of all, I would just like to say that I am uh, an enormous fan, and I uh, obviously have a huge amount of respect for the work that you've done, not just for the emotional difficulty of the content of the work, which is a strain uh, and, and is overwhelming uh, in the emotional content, but also for the emotional and moral courage that it takes to, to bring these very difficult facts or these very difficult histories to light. I mean, it, it seems very obvious to each of us when we, meet, when we meet an individual that that individual has been highly influenced by his or her early childhood history. But when we extrapolate that to nations or cultures as a whole, suddenly we seem to lose that thread and we no longer think that the culture is influenced by oh, early God childhood help. experiences. We, we, should, we should blame mothers for anything, you know. <laughs> right. You know, the, the fact that the mothers are beaten up and, uh, and raped and stuff, that doesn't matter if they should be superhuman. <laughs> right. I give speeches, you know, uh, at, uh, uh, at uh, colleges and at, univers at uh, uh, psychoanalytic things and so on, and they, they are silent at the end of my speech. And then one person tentatively sticks his finger up and says, do you mean, Dr. DeMoss, that if you treat children with love, that we won't have any more wars? I said, yeah, you got my, you got my point. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that's too simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you said, everybody wants you to break into the Beatles song, all you need is love, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. All you sense. need is love. I said, do you think that, make, that give, giving, uh, making sure that love and care is given to every single one of the, of the uh, uh, billions of people on the face of the earth, that's going to be easy? <laughs> oh, I wanted brother. to ask you if you don't mind. I mean, obviously, I have my own theories, but you're the expert, so let's let's turn it over to you. There seems to be, because I mean, I studied history up to the graduate school level uh, as well, and you would get continually these explanations of historical events, which would have to do with uh, economics. You know, the Marxists are very big on sure. economics, or it would have to do with particular politics, or who happened to be king at the time, or a particular theological or philosophical innovation, or maybe exactly. even an economic innovation, and they always left me quite unsatisfied. I always felt that our greatest social institutions come out of our very earliest childhood experiences. Did you but go particularly through particularly when you when you look at the statistics of the people who have looked at wars and found that wars are after periods of prosperity, nine chances out of ten. That, that there aren't that wars are 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 something like fifteen times as as. Uh, as uh, uh, violent uh, after periods of prosperity, so uh, so the wars are there to to uh, to be self-destructive. 
and that they're, doesn't... Suicide. they're suicides. Right. And, and I think I saw you a video of you where you were talking about that you really can't understand Hitler's, like people talk about Lebensraum and things like that, but it had nothing to do with any geopolitical or military, that Hitler was simply suicidal and there were enough disturbed personalities in the German Reich that they everybody followed him off the cliff. They should have guessed. Anybody should guess that if you go out and you kill all those Jews because they're poisoning your blood, and if Hitler is seen sitting there looking for hours at his blood as the uh, as the beast as little uh, uh, what do they call them uh, the uh, they used to uh, get the blood out of you uh, and he looks at it and he says those are Jews those are those are lice those are uh, uh, you know this isn't this isn't logical <laughs> this isn't right. economic <laughs> right. Now, did you, when when you were studying, I guess, history and, and in your earlier parts of your education, did you go through a sort of more materialistic phase before looking at this kind of stuff? Or, I'd, I mean, I'm really curious and fascinated to know how it was that you began to work in this no, particular area. No, as a matter area. of fact, I came from uh, from uh, uh, fighting in Korea uh, and having, uh, uh, so saying, you know, this is the craziest thing I ever saw because nobody nobody in Korea, including my, my uh, general who I worked in his 8th Army headquarters, Maxwell Taylor, uh, he just didn't want to lose, and uh, in fact, he even uh, his, his uh, uh, assistants told me that when I played tennis with him, he I had to lose because <laughs> <laughs> wow. he just he was just the, the kind of guy him and MacArthur and some of the other guys over there they just never want to lose. It's it's their, what I call a masculinity mask. <laughs> yeah, and, you mentioned uh, this with armor. And so I came over from Korea thinking, i got to find out what these crazy things called wars are for. And I went to Columbia, I went to undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school, and I finally ended up, and then I went to a psychoanalytic institute to be able to learn what, uh, uh, theories of crazy people, because they're crazy, you know? These people are crazy. Right. <laughs> There's no lice that are going to poison your blood. <laughs> and so I ended up, and I said, all right, I'm ready to, got got through all my good, uh, courses and, uh, and uh, awards words and uh, and so on and that's so I said okay now I'm about ready to finish up my doctorate and have a uh, a, uh, a doctoral thesis I want to do what 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 uh, kind of childhood the, the Germans had at that time because nobody had written about it and my my uh, supervisor said no no we don't know Freud here you do what we tell you right I said you mean if I get a doctorate and I go to work for a university, every single word I write, I have to be afraid that I, I can't feed my family with a, for the next meal because I'm going to get fired? He said, yes, that's right. He said, you, you teach what we, what you, you have in your courses what we say, not what you want. And I said, well, fuck you. And I left. I never went back. <laughs> I never finished the doctorate, in fact. Right, <laughs> right. So, right. No, and there, there is a lot of hostility to, to looking at motivations for history that also may include our own motivations as human beings. History is something that people like to keep at a relatively safe distance. Right. But when you begin to talk about childhood experiences that are negative, that you you or I or other people may have gone through ourselves, suddenly it becomes a lot more personal and I think people get uncomfortable. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's certainly what I've seen. Oh, they're terrible. They say, I have read, read at least 200 books on childhood history, one one kind of another, whether it's a religious historian or a, you know, a French historian or whatever. And, uh, see, and every one of them does quote me someplace in some footnote and says, this guy is absolutely crazy. Not one of them. Uh, none of my books are used in any of the courses around 
around the world anymore. Uh, they were at very, very beginning, but uh, once they feel uh, saw that I was really serious about it, they just uh, threw it out. And I've dropped from 6,000 to 800 subscribers on my journal, and it's 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 you know a lot of my. I had a, 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 a 50 person publishing company that I had so that it could give me the million dollars it cost to start the first years of the journal and so on. It has absolutely been uphill and it continues to be uphill. And, and the amazing thing about that, and again, this is part of what I wanted to, I know that uh, it can be a lonely voice in the wilderness being the voice of reason, but I just wanted to applaud you for sticking with it because I think that the material that you produce is really incredibly thought-provoking. It is unbelievably challenging to, to large numbers of people, to the vast majority of people. And it's interesting because we actually have as a society continually talked about how children are precious and wonderful and should be loved, but we resolutely, it seems, continually turn away from when we see children being mistreated, then we, we say that they're these precious creatures that we should love and respect, and they're all portrayed as you know, wonderful parents in the media. But then when we see children being mistreated, very often people will just completely avoid it and make it a non-thing that they just won't talk about. And I think that's part of where your work falls in. Yeah, well, and, and it certainly is, is, is now uh, fairly popular to publish the fact that uh, uh, 80 or 90 percent of the American and British and other, uh, uh, not, not so much some of the European countries, though, but uh, the, uh, the children are beaten regularly. You know, they uh, they asked uh, 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 Tony Blair, uh, you know, shouldn't you have something about not beating children? And, oh, no. He says, I hit my little one-year-old. He says, how can you make him disciplined otherwise? He doesn't talk yet. Wow. <laughs> we got to hit him. Gotta so I walk down the streets <laughs> when I visit and give give lectures at the uh, at the uh, institutes and, and so on in, in uh, London. And I watch the streets one city after another, different cities. And, and then I go to uh, to uh, uh, Austria and, uh, and Vienna, I look at and so on. And in Vienna, all the mothers are like in New York City, because uh, we're kind of a, a, a part of Europe. <laughs> the mothers and the fathers talk to the kids and kid around with them and laugh and, uh, and you know, see what you see for your, your neighbors. Uh, perhaps the, uh, where you live is the same. And um, uh, in London, they're all straight up and down. Totally, nobody smiles at their children. Nobody does mm. it. The, the kids are so disciplined that walking down the street and and through the through the uh, uh, shops, uh, they're all totally straight up and down. And uh, I look at those kinds of things, and that's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's revealing. It really is. And the figures are still eighty, ninety percent of the of the kids in America and uh, and uh, the United Kingdom are uh, are beaten regularly. My father used to whack me with a with a, with a razor strap, surely. Yeah. And all my and all my friends in Detroit, Michigan, where I grew up. <laughs> Well, when I was uh, when I was six, I was sent to a British boarding school where you were caned if you did oh, yes. things that were inappropriate. And and again, uh, to me, it's it's completely shocking to look at it from. I mean, being a father myself now, I mean, it's it's completely incomprehensible that you would strike your beautiful little kid. Oh, I mean, they're down. so helpless and they're so sweet. Right. right. Oh, brother. Anyway, uh, the uh, the uh, message is across that that there's a bunch of people out, and we have couple hundred people who belong to our International Psychohistorical Association, which you've got to come and, uh, and see our next June convention. I'll send you all stuff, right? And uh, we have maybe 40 or 50 or 60 people uh, giving papers. 
of uh, of how it's still like uh, in Eastern Europe, where they're still swaddling. Are you kidding? In Russia, they still right. swaddle. Right. <laughs> I was uh, I was struck by the the conversation that you have or the 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 chapter did you have the chapter nine on Christianity and its effect upon the sort of the bipolar aspects of the personality and of course I'm not a psychologist I'm just using these terms in an amateur sense uh, and the degree to which that provoked the suicidality of wars and I was wondering if if you'd had any thoughts I'm sure you have on the degree to which the more Christianized South, which tends to produce the majority of soldiers in America and also where uh, uh, hitting children seems to be more common than in other areas of the country, the degree to which some of the heavy Christianity slash child abuse culture that occurs in certain places in the United States may have had some effect on the prosecution of this war that nobody can understand, which is the oh, Iraq sure. invasion. Oh, sure. One third of America is now fundamentalist Christian. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I don't have to have my opinion on it. They've got statistics that shows when you go out and you ask them, you know, what what kind of childhood did you have? How many times did your father hit you? And what what kind of punishment did you have if you did this or that, the other thing, and so on? And they're all beaten up like crazy still. Uh, and that's they believe it. They believe in it. Uh, and of course, the fundamentalist Christians are the ones that are uh, that are uh, ready for war all the time. America is uh, is uh, has one half of all of the. <laughs> puts one half of all of the money around the world into uh, uh, military. We've got one half of, of every, everybody's military. Right. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> right. And, and I think that it's in America, it's sort of divided between those who are on the more secular side, whether they're agnostics or even mild believers, who simply can't understand the war and keep making up these reasons. It's oil, it's, it's you know, Bin yeah. Laden or all this yeah, kind of thing. And then yeah. on the it more… Must be oil. It must, it must be we were, we were buying oil from Saddam at about twelve dollars a barrel. <laughs> right, and of course <laughs> they have. <laughs> they've produced barely any oil since the invasion in five yeah, six years ago. Right. So, so oh, and then it's obviously not more, oil. <laughs> yeah, the people who are on the more religious side accept it as part of a, a, a sort of a eschatological view of the world, or no, or the end have, times prophecy that is required. They take it for granted, and everybody else, like the First World War, which wiped out all of nineteenth-century wealth, people sure. simply can't understand it, and they try to come up with all these explanations that are like trying to fit these round pegs into square holes: and geopolitical this, or economics that, or control of resources the other, and it's all nonsense. And I, this is what I've sort of found to be so fruitful in the work of the psychohistorians, yourself and of course others, is a way of looking at it that makes sense from a non-external materialistic standpoint, but looks at it from sort of a depth psychology of where people are coming from and why they're doing these things that make no sense. You, you get much more wealth from another country by trading with that country than by invading it. So the argument from economics just never made any sense to me, but I think the work that, that you guys are doing is really challenging though it is. It is really uh, uh, opening up this, this For way. For the first time, academics are, being, are, are told to ask why. Why is it means that you go to a motive? And uh, we're the study of uh, historical motivations. Uh, they don't ask motives. Uh, they say, why does uh, why did Hitler, uh, uh, was he so popular? Well, you know, if he'd have been shot before the war, uh, we never would have had the war. <laughs> right. Just that one guy happened to, you know, as though there weren't dozens of them, hundreds of them, ready to do the same thing. And anyway, you can't say, why is they're trying to imitate somebody else. I have a, I have a little uh, 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 thought experiment on that. I'm walking down the street and I see a, uh, a, a round racing track. Cars are going in it, bumper to bumper, clockwise. Okay, and they're going around at 50 miles an hour. 
And I'm looking, I say, wow, that's, that's great. All of a sudden, they stop and go counterclockwise 50 miles an hour. And I run up to the first guy in the, in the first car, and I say, what made you decide to turn it around the other direction? And he says, oh, I don't have an engine in my car. <laughs> None of us do. We're all being pushed. Right. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> the answer everybody else is doing it so I'm going to do it is not an answer is it right. you've got to have an engine in the car you've got to have a mind you've got to have a, a motive right yeah. <laughs> well and, and the fact that uh, the most dictatorial regimes in the 20th century tended to arise from those countries that were the most heavily Christianized in Europe which would be Russia and yeah. Germany and uh, some of the other countries in Eastern Europe again that is something that people just kind of miss they just they look for all of these other explanations other than the most obvious, which is that religiosity, I mean, as an atheist myself, religiosity is a false doctrine and therefore it has to be forcibly inflicted on children because children are very skeptical. I mean, if I give my daughter a box with nothing in it and tell her there's a God in it, she doesn't believe me. She's like, well, where's my present? Right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to be quite brutal with children to get them to believe things that aren't true. Indeed. Yes, indeed. And that has an effect on the children's capacity to reason independently uh, throughout the rest of their lives. Anyway, there are people around doing it, and uh, we have them coming to our convention, and we have them uh, uh, writing up the journal uh, for now 37 years, and uh, it'll keep. Uh, it's it's a new veil, a new field, brand new way of uh, of looking at uh, at uh, history and political science and so on. There is there is actually a, 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 a com competitive group called the Political Science Psychology Group. And they've got much more people, and they're very successful, and they get thousands of people coming to their conventions, and they, uh, and so on. But they never go into child rearing. You know, they 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 just assume that uh, Germans, for instance, at, at a certain point, for, for no particular reason, were born hating Jews. And it's in the genes. It must be in the genes, right? Right. <laughs> and those beautiful little babies, <laughs> they don't hate Jews. They don't want to kill people. They don't really want. Oh, brother. Anyway. I, I wanted to ask, if you don't mind, um, th there is this thing in the, in the physical sciences where people say that in order for a, a radical or unusual or challenging new theory to be adopted, the, the, the believers in the old theory kind of have to retire or die off or something like that, that there's a cycle that's more generational because it's very hard to you know teach old dogs new tricks, so to speak. Do you think that uh, it's sort of a generational thing that as a younger group of people, and it seems to me that, that younger people are much more psychologically sophisticated. We know genetically that each generation gets more intelligent, and yeah, they seem I, to be more sophisticated. I so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, they've had better child rearing. Uh, yes, uh, the yes. progress comes essentially when you have a new group of mothers who are able to do better than their mother did with them. Right. Uh, and uh, so the great big take a look. Uh, my next chapter will do this. Uh, that I'll uh, finish in probably six months or so. Uh, that I'll show that uh, that uh, uh, all through the Christian period there was no increase in in gross national product at all. I mean, you know, they, they had the same the same farms and the same uh, uh, single uh, uh, horses pulling a plow and the same houses without any any floors in them. They, they didn't even put any floors in them. Right. <laughs> you didn't think they chopped down a tree and put a, Flora, and so it'd be kind of clean, you know. No, they lived in the dirt uh, for fifteen hundred years. Then uh, all of a sudden, uh, somebody said, "You know, girls should be given a little bit of education." What? 
And that means the next generation of mothers had a little bit of self-respect, you know, right. and, and maybe you shouldn't rape all the girls. <laughs> right. And maybe right. you shouldn't send them out to wet nurse and, and so on, all kinds of. So you get and immediately you look at the, at the chart of the gross national product and it jumps. It jumps straight up. The biggest jump took place in 1860. To 18, uh, 1880, uh, before the World War, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, gross national product of the whole Earth suddenly just just blossomed. Uh, but mainly, what? Or in the 1820s and 10s and and so on, there were women's movements that said that right. we, we we deserve some respect, and uh, that's what we that's what we do out in Boulder, Colorado at the Community Parenting Center that was started by Bob McFarland uh, because he read my work and said, I want to do away with war, so I better have a parenting center. Huh. And he uh, and he started the center there, and he taught the mothers how to mother and uh, how they re deserve respect and how the fathers should help them and, and not just leave them to, to, to that plus all the rest of the crap that they had to do in the place. Uh, and uh, within a, a, a decade or so, the... Uh, uh, the number of people being thrown into jail went down. Wow. <laughs> wow. And, of course, they, they uh, are anti-war in that area. So he's gone around. He just died recently, but he has started some parenting centers in uh, in Eastern Europe and other places, you know. He wanted to start one in Palestine. He didn't get to it yet, though. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to change Palestine uh, uh, Jewish uh, relations, uh, go help the the parents and the kids. I think I I thought that your analysis of um, the uh, the martyr, uh, the Palestinian martyr, was fantastic. You you have a, a a cutoff. I mean, it's not a cutoff, of course, but it's a sort of way you consider a significant change. If I remember rightly, it's the that you could not find any parents before the 17th century. Uh, who would not currently be thrown in jail for child abuse? Yeah, in a moment. I said 18th century. But 18th, 18th century, right. sorry. Yeah, uh, but yeah, sure. You... There's, you know, not a one of them uh, that wasn't at least uh, beating the hell out of them with a stick, because the right. stick was the stick was hanging uh, was hanging on the uh, on the uh, wall, and uh, she could grab it at any time, and that's why the 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 motherland uh, uh, that goes to war. La, Ma La, La Nacion, uh, Lady Liberty, uh, 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 and so on. Each one of the nations uh, have, uh, have uh, w women goddesses that take you to war. Every one of those goddesses, uh, Marianne in France, uh, carries a stick, right. you know? And right. even the, uh, the Statue of Liberty, she's carrying something to in her hand, too, ready to whack you with it. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to this amazing transition in the 18th century, which, I mean, as, as part of the um, Enlightenment, produced this immense flowering of, of science and art and, and new forms of government that were much more benevolent, do, do you see, I mean, why do you think it was the 18th and not the 17th or the 19th century? Do you think that there was any external force or was it just people… In, you know, with the printing, with with the exposed uh, exposure to greater access of printing presses and so on, did pe more benevolent people just start to speak out, or was there some other influence that began to really change things around that century? I um, I think it just takes that long. You know, it took 15 centuries for Christianity to make some progress uh, away from the notion that God just is there to send you to hell. Mm. And uh, uh, when you get to the uh, uh, before the the real uh, uh, scientific part and everything, uh, uh, you get to the Protestant Revolution that says, "No, God really would like you to be nice to your kids." And Luther would say, uh, 
you know, I, I enjoy my son, <laughs> and right. I help him a little bit, and I teach him a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, it's not as good as they say, because Luther is supposed to be, oh, really nice to children. Yeah, sure, he takes care of his son. That means he beats him. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he's absolutely certain that God is up there trying to send his son and himself to hell. My favorite thing about Luther is uh, he sits down one day and he makes a list for six hours of all his sins that he ought to be tortured for in hell. And he makes the whole list in his diary and he puts it on his table and he says, ah, finally, God is, is accepting of me because I've literally made a list of everything I've done wrong in my life. And he walks away and he goes down the street and he says, oh, I forgot one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hell. <laughs> right. I guess we can add OCD to the... Um to the uh, amateur psychology of, uh, of remote Christian forefathers as well as man expression. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and he was uh, very much, you know, reason must be crushed in order to bring you closer to God. Uh, so there was some uh, emotional affection towards children. And I have an ancestor um, who, was a, uh, who was a philosopher and who also wrote quite affectionately towards his child, but still had a great deal of trouble uh, in non, with non-martial forms of discipline. That just seems to be the way that people think, well, you can't reason with a child and therefore you should hit one. And the amazing thing is we never think about that with people who have dementia or people who are retarded or old people who forget where they have their keys or whatever. Sure. We never beat those people up, even though we may not be able to reason with them. But with children, it's somehow different. And that, I think, the work that you do provides great insight as to why we have these different standards for people whose brains are not mature or whose brains are deficient in some manner. Uh, you know, we don't yeah, do well, it to old we people, have, but we will do we it have, to children. We have a, a an inner alternate personality called uh, alter, uh, called uh, that's uh, uh, a bad self, if you want to say it that way. And we've internalized this bad self, and it's walking around with us in our head. And uh, uh, my favorite psychotherapist uh, is out in California uh, who has something called voice therapy. And uh, he says, uh, here's how you do voice therapy. You sit down and you say to the people, and he says, this isn't just your patients. This is your next door neighbor and your fellow therapist and so on. You say, yeah, well, what do you think about when you go to bed at night? And they say, well, you know, I think, oh, Jesus, God, I didn't do anything right today. I was absolutely, I, you know, I should have helped my wife on this, but I'm so selfish and I just, I didn't have to finish everything in my, in my work and so on. And they said, okay, now wait a minute. Take the I, the first person, and put it into a second person and re say exactly what you just said. <laughs> and they say, Oh, well, you are very selfish. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. And immediately they see themselves, feel themselves to be back in their bedroom with their mother saying, you are so selfish. Right. How come you don't help me? You never right. think of anything but yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And that, he says, is astonishing. It's called voice therapy. And he started out voice therapy by, by working mainly with suicidal patients. And... Um, and we've got this alternate personality in our head that keeps yelling at ourselves, our bad, our own bad self. Uh, and uh, and uh, eventually, if we get too much of that, uh, we say, oh, look, we got to find a bad self abroad to punish. I can't just keep yelling at myself. I've got to yell at Jews or I've got to yell at, uh, at the Iraqis or got to yell at somebody else, anything else. Yeah, Ooh. there is that, that feeling that some people have that, 
I will gain power over the anxiety of having been abused by becoming an abuser, by inhabiting the skin right. of the person who had the most power. And that is to deny, I guess, what Jung would call the shadow or Freud would call to some degree the id. Uh, rather than yeah. confronting that dark side of ourselves, we in, instead become the abuser and that gives us relief from yeah. that. Uh, but I don't even think it's instinctual. You know, I, I don't see anything in a, in a, in a, in a four-day-old baby that uh, <laughs> blames himself or, or has an instinct for uh, – for violence or for screwing his mother. <laughs> no. no, in fact, the amazing thing about, and I know that you're a parent too, but the amazing thing about seeing my daughter is the degree to which she does not self-criticize at all. When she tries something and fails, she simply tries again. She right. doesn't get upset. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't hit herself and say, oh, I'm so stupid or whatever. Yeah. And she just keeps trying again with this completely glorious and unconscious persistence. And I think that is her natural state. I think you're right that the shadow, you have to erect a Bad, ugly statue to get that kind of shadow. I don't think it's a. But to reach it, you have to get. You have to go through forty centuries of uh, parent-child uh, evolution. Right. And uh, so what I am is uh, carrying Darwin one step further. I go beyond the the uh, uh, essentially Darwinian notions that uh, that Freud and uh, Jung and others had of of inheriting bad stuff, and say no, you don't inherit it. You're just start out fresh each time. And you can see that, you know. You, you got people in uh, in parts of uh, Aborigine uh, Australia who are still eating each other, right? right. And, right. and beating up the kids and doing all kinds of horrible things. So there's people from the city who are uh, who have had the, 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 uh, an extra 20 centuries of, uh, of uh, parent-child evolution go in and they grab the next bunch of uh, of. 200 babies and take them into their home. Now, none of them are more violent than the rest of them. The, the, right. the Aborigines are still eat, <laughs> collecting heads and eating each other. Right. You know, it's uh, it's, it's just simply the childbearing, simple as that. But it takes that long uh, to pile on mother after good mother after better mother after mother who tries to innovate. Right. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, 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 the metaphor that has always sprung to my mind is if you looked at uh, the feet of women in the 19th century in China, you'd say, you know, as adults, you'd say, well, they, they have really weird feet. They're all curled in under themselves and so on. <laughs> Yeah. And you wouldn't say, well, what did the parents do to them to make that happen? Uh, and, and if you miss that, then you, you completely misunderstand the whole culture and what it does. Do you know, do you know by the way, why they did that? I, th I think if I remember rightly, it, it was something to do with the sexual gratification of <laughs> right. They masturbate themselves in the, by the by the uh, inside the uh, foot uh, uh, arch. I guess because <laughs> they were that afraid of the vagina. Is that is that the idea? That <laughs> right. So overwhelming? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. You know that <laughs> vaginas are like uh, a menstrual fluid that's poisonous. <laughs> they have teeth. Vagina dentata. Absolutely, oh, it's terrifying for men. <laughs> I was wondering just, be, and I wanted to just ask you. I don't want to take up your whole day because I really want you to keep working on these chapters. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you have uh, you touched on it, and I'm sure you've done more than touch on it. But all that I've read uh, is the degree to which you talk about, uh, you know, Africa, for instance, obviously is a great challenge to empathetic people throughout the world because after trillions of dollars and 50 years of Western aid, it's as bad, if not worse, as it was before. And you talked. To, uh, I'd like if you could expand on it for a few minutes. Um, the degree to which uh, the wars that are fought in Africa are not about economic gain because when they kill people, they will castrate them or in things which have no economic purpose and must be some sort of a horrible reenactment of early abuse. So I wonder if you could touch a little bit on how the discipline that you work with uh, uh, can work or explain 
the phenomenon or the the continual uh, degradations in Africa? Yeah, well, the the uh, the uh, child abuse and neglect neglect even more than abuse, because if you just don't pay any attention to the child, uh, the front part of their brain, uh, when you put a PET scan on, a CAT scan on, you, uh, the, it, the do- doctor says it looks like a black hole. There's nothing there. There's no uh, there's no uh, uh, precortex, and that's what that's what. Uh, controls your amygdalin uh, uh, fear center and your amygdalin uh, uh, violence. Uh, so the front part of your brain. Sorry, could just just for the listeners who aren't more familiar, if you could just touch on on those because I think those are particularly fascinating aspects, and I, I wouldn't assume that people know. If you could just touch on those a little bit more. The uh, the front part of the brain uh, uh, being not in control because it's uh, it's damaged and uh, it's got far too many uh, 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 and the amygdala uh, uh, just just goes straight through you know any of us can get angry at something but uh, if you haven't got a, a forebrain to to control that anger uh, then you go out not only and kill people but rape why why are wars full of rape. Did you ever think of that? You know, people who say that war has something to do with violence, but rape, you know, virtually every war, the, 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 the soldiers uh, go around raping one person after another. That's the, that's the purpose of, uh, part of the purpose of, uh, of them getting drunk and getting into the army. And of course, if you look at what happened at Abu Ghraib, I mean, this sexual humiliation of the prisoners had nothing to do with, with oil or, or anything like that. Yeah, well, it doesn't. Look, I have just finished, because I'm writing my chapter on nationalism, I've just finished a whole bunch of stuff on sovereignty and nationalism. And uh, every one of them tries to figure out, you know, what is this sovereignty business, you know? Gee whiz, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you, you hate the outside out group, and you, uh, you love the in-group, and you consider them, you know, part of you, and so on. There must be because of, and then they guess at it, uh, because of the language, because of the religion, because of the, this or the other, the other, the other. But then they don't look at the ones nowadays uh, where uh, 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 nations who, who live next door to each other, whether it's Yugoslavia or uh, or uh, someplace in Africa, uh, where, where they've been living next door to each other for five centuries, and then all of a sudden they say, oh my gosh, uh, I forgot we were supposed to be an enemy of them because something happened in 1304, right. you know? But obviously they're just looking for an excuse. And uh, what's happening is that in the in the brain, uh, there is a particular uh, part of the brain uh, that's uh, called mirror neurons that actually uh, have some empathy, ability to have empathy. And the mirror neurons are just turned off and uh, and uh, you have no empathy at all for your next door neighbor who who uh, you you know you've been living next to door to him and friendly toward him for centuries. <laughs> right. And you ask them why did you go to war? And I swear some of them say because the guy across the street wears a different kind of tie or right. has a different kind of flag or a different kind of something or other. But it's just an excuse. Uh, something is happening inside your brain. Uh, that uh, that uh, uh, makes uh, uh, part of your group uh, seem to be uh, uh, an enemy. Right. So the amygdala and fear network is is if you get a lot of early trauma, you have a very heightened fight fight. And correct me if I go astray. That's right. You yeah. have a heightened fight or flight mechanism, and if you don't have the the frontal uh, cortex to 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 suppress or control or defer the gratification, you will act out. You have impulse control problems, and you won't be able to have the kind of empathy that results in a more peaceful world. Precisely. Right. Okay. And this is uh, obviously, uh, I think, quite uh, a big 
a tragic uh, set of parenting standards in Africa that produces these, you know, completely ghastly uh, uh, countries uh, and the Rwandan genocides and so on. Is that I think that's the theory that the sure, parenting but, but, is just but so. The women there have to have to. Uh, uh, Take care of the herd of cattle and and uh, 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 pick up the the uh, corn and whatever it else is that, that they're eating and uh, cook it and uh, do all the rest of the work. Uh, they, they haven't got time for kids, right? And so the know, kids are abandoned. As you know, Christian children didn't even get they brought up by their parents. They got sent off to wet nurse because the mother's blood was made out of poison. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is the idea that the mother's milk comes from the menstrual blood. This is a medieval yeah. idea that that it was sort of poisonous to the children. And I mean. Again, that's a powerful metaphor that probably has some strong unconscious roots, but it would cause the mothers to want to send their kids away, right? Yep. yep. Wow. So, so they didn't bring up. And by the time they come home at three or four years old, they send them right out to servants and apprentices, and uh, they're raped. Right. Right. And the degree to which uh, the sexual predation upon children is still occurring, I think the statistics were something like a third of men and over half of women report having been sexually molested or, or abused as children. That, of course, is a, is a statistic that is really, really tough. I mean, because if you really absorb that statistic, you know, you walk uh, into a bus and you look around and you think of all of these people with these these tragic histories, it is really all around us. And it's something that's so hard for people to remember to focus on. It's like they wish those statistics had never entered their heads because you yeah, but you can do something about it. And uh, uh, when I was in uh, in Austria, uh, I found out that uh, 30 years ago they passed a law that said you can't hit your kids. And they passed a law that said that every mother has three years worth of paid uh, leave for every child that she has, so that she can take care of it for three years decently, uh, uh, paid by the government, not paid not paid by the uh, the corporation. Uh, so uh, they suddenly have totally changed from being probably one of the most violent nations, the Austria-Hungary right. nation is, uh, would start a war every 10 years, you know. Right. Uh, but now they don't. They're, they're part of the European Union. And I just finished uh, in the, in the uh, journal, you might have read it, a book called uh, uh, Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? <laughs> and no one wants to be a soldier in Austria. Right. <laughs> it just, you know, when you mentioned this, it just struck me uh, that, um, I mean, I, I grew up in England uh, uh, and uh, there was a lot of worship of the Second World War. And my brother and I, we would play with guns and pretend to be fighter pilots and all that. And it was a very martial culture that was very proud of its uh, oh, yeah. murderous genocides in the war. And my, my, my mother was, uh, well, is German. And when we would have cousins come over from Germany, they actually would not, they, they were not allowed to play with guns. Uh, uh -huh. And they 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 didn't even look wistfully. They're just like, no, we don't we don't play with guns. Obviously, this yeah. was the post-war experience. Yeah. And if you look, and again, I'm not saying this is causal, but it's an interesting correlation that if you look down the road, you know, come uh, early 21st century, it is England that goes to war in Iraq and Germany that refuses. Yep, precisely. It is those little details that that result in these very large uh, wars. It's fascinating. Yep, and you don't find any uh, uh, German anti-Semitism anymore. What? My God, <laughs> Germany! <laughs> right, right. And they don't let them hit them, hit them in the schools. Right. Yeah, because that was when I was a kid. That was still going on. That went on, I think, up until the early '80s yep. uh, in uh, in Canada. So it is amazing the degree to which we are willing to extend protection to children, while at the same time denying the effects of that lack of protection. It is really is a weird kind of double think that goes on in society that I think is a 
the great cost of social acceptance of the work that you're doing, which is quite tragic, I think. But, you know, again, we take the progress as a species wherever we can get it. And I think we should at least be happy that even if people can't look at the effects of child abuse very directly, that they are still working towards a less abusive future and present for the children, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, abuse statistics are going down, even in America and the United Kingdom, and uh, and uh, certainly in Canada, they're below below the United States right now. But uh, uh, the European Union groups say, uh, you know what? We don't even need a president of the European community. We don't need presidents. That means that you're, you're totally in, uh, they're totally in charge of you and they can send you to war. No, no, we don't do that. Right. All the doctors in, uh, in one European Union country uh, uh, cooperate with the doctors in the other one but don't have anybody over them. Right. That's right. called networking rather than, uh, rather than hierarchy. Well, sure. And if we remove the hierarchical aggression of parenting, or at least reduce it, I think for sure we will end up with a general flattening of society. If we raise children to be skeptical of authority, to question authority, and to view themselves as equal, though younger participants within society, then it seems hard to imagine that the sort of house of cards that is a sort of current hierarchical system of control and authority, you know, with, with prisons and, and wars, and it's hard to imagine how that can sustain itself when children are raised it egalitarian. There, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a guy here called Gilligan. Who's a psychiatrist? Who is a prison psychiatrist? And he went from one prison to the other and said, "Do you know I have yet to meet one single person who was in prison who didn't say that he was beaten up, burned, and and all kinds of horrible things in his child rearing, and who said to me, you know, I only feel that I had some respect when I got a gun in my hand." Right. So he went to the one place that he was mainly in charge of, and he said, "You know what? Let me take over this." this prison. And they did for a few years. They gave him some extra money. And he said, okay, now everybody is now a student. You are not going to be locked in, in, in humiliating chambers. Right. Uh, you're going to go to college uh, and high school if you haven't gone to high school. And he went through and he gave them all a profession. And do you know the the seventy percent uh, 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 repeat rate, rate of re offense? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the rate of uh, coming back into the in, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you we, know, it's recidivism or something. I, I can't quite pronounce it in yeah, my head, right? But I, yeah, the rate of repeat offense. Sure. Yeah, the repeat offense uh, went down to zero. Not one was zero. Came back. Wow. Zero. Can you imagine that? Wow. Can you imagine that we should, we could just empty out all of those expensive? Uh, it costs a lot, hundred thousand dollars a year to keep a person in jail. Well, and the terrible <laughs> tragedy is it's, since it's easier to put them to college and give them right. a career. And and since uh, um, since it was confinement and abuse that led them to prison, a continuation of confinement and abuse is just sowing the seeds of repeat offense, right? And that is the great tragedy of those kinds of solutions. Yeah. And so we talk of a world without war, but of course, uh, if we can get parents to treat their children with the dignity and respect that all children deserve, we could actually have a war. Uh, sorry, we could actually have a world without crime, other without than crime. You know, Absolutely. some people who have mental illnesses. Absolutely. And that is something that is very hard for people to understand. And to focus upon the parent-child interactions as the source of progress and peace in the world is something that is really, really tough for people to wrap their heads around. They keep running off with these massive economic uh, uh, answers. So, well, uh, it may be the fates telling us to, to wrap it up so that you can get back to work on your book. I really wanted to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me today. It is always a pleasure and an enlightenment to, to chat with you, and I will be sure to send as many more people as I can to the website. Okay, I just wanted to say thank you.
<laughs> I think we'll have to bail because we're having some strange technical difficulties. All right. Well, listen, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to to chat. Uh, I wish you the very best with the book. Uh, you know, keep feeding me the uh, articles, and I will.